At Goodfellow, we are proud to support Outside In, a charity that aims to provide a platform for artists who face significant barriers to the art world due to health, disability, social circumstances or isolation. To find out more information or to donate, head to our website materialshub.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Materials Inside podcast by Goodfellow, the podcast that will bring materials, knowledge and science, along with art and design, together in the same podcast. Goodfellow is a UK company based in Huntingdon that supplies over 70,000 materials to different industries all over the world. Their team of scientists and sales and marketing experts want to make the materials world accessible to everyone. During the next few weeks, we will be talking about materials from aluminium to zinc for applications from satellites to planes, cars, ventilators, pieces of art and furniture. How do we link it all? Wait and see, or even better, listen to our podcasts. Presented by Joel Alexio, the Global Marketing Manager of Goodfellow, he will be speaking with a range of guests from industry professionals to public figures, artists, celebrities and Goodfellow's own experts. The materials for today are green materials. Welcome to this special edition podcast focusing on green materials. Which smart choices can we make to ensure the sustainability of science design and technology. Goodfellow promotes the usage of green materials, encouraging recycling and reusing where possible. We know how difficult it can be to balance quality and ethnically chosen materials, and we are here to help. The Materials Hub offers a guide explaining which materials can be redesigned, renewed, reconfigured, recycled and reimagined. Where green materials are not an option, Goodfellow makes every effort to reduce waste. We do this by encouraging customers to only order the volume of materials they need by offering no minimum order quantities. This waste reduction is further encouraged by our yearly stock purchase scheme, where you can schedule deliveries as and when you need more stock in quantities of your choosing. Stephen Aldersley, CEO at Goodfellow, will join us later to talk about our environmentally friendly practices and what it means to be green in a commercial environment. Andy Harris also joins us later, a forward-thinking architect who has some really interesting approaches to architecture. We explore some of the methods he uses to build around the environment rather than destroying it. Lastly, we are joined by Edie Rex, a model and prop maker turned drag barbarian. We discussed how prop making and drag doesn't need to be expensive and can also be green. But first, we are joined by Purva Chavla and Adelar Kohada. Together, they run Material Driven, a design agency and materials library which specializes in sustainable materials, often reusing waste materials which would otherwise end up in landfills. Purva and Adel continually pioneer new ways to keep the science and design industries green, expertly acting as the glue which combines together the worlds of conservation, innovation and education. Hello Purva, hello Adele. Hi Joel. Hi Joel, great to be here. Hello Adam, thank you for joining us too. Hi Joel. So Adele and Purva, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Materials Driven project? We are a design agency and a materials library as you said Joel. Um, and really, I think our goal is to um, educate different types of entities about 
the most sustainable, most advanced materials um, out there being developed by a number of different entities, whether it's, um, you know, individuals, startups or large manufacturers. We position ourselves as the interface between the people making these wonderful materials and the companies who want to learn about and implement them. So that's sort of us in a nutshell. Yeah, just to follow up with Perva, I think, you know, we were just fascinated by the idea of helping these great innovators to get their materials to the market so that we can, all, all designers could, could use these innovative materials in their products. Exactly. And uh, one of our motivations uh, also was this idea that when you look around you, uh, there's often a lot of focus on just the end products. Um, and we really wanted to highlight the uh, materials, the processes and the makers behind these unique products. And materials really offered us that journey for people to make good choices, to learn about how things are made as well. Great. We at Goodfellow know uh, materials driven quite well because we've been working together for a few years now. Um, Adam, you also know the project about materials driven and, and how important it is for us to link with, with materials driven. What you can say about that? Well, I think um, from my point of view, been working with materials driven now as you said for a number of years. It's uh, been a real education in terms of um, looking at materials uh, from firstly from a design point of view which was something new to me. Uh, and then also the range of different people and companies that they work with is, is a real eye-opener. Well, it's kind of been like that for us as well. In reverse, I think our contact with the Goodfellows allowed us to uh, really open our eyes to a whole realm of really, really advanced materials, you know, which have, uh, you know, traditionally been thought of in the science and technology sectors. And now we're just learning how fantastic these materials are and how much potential they have both functionally and aesthetically. So uh, it's been a really wonderful uh, two-way learning. You get a, a, a different perspective, whether you're talking to a designer or a material scientist or an engineer or an architect and actually bringing those worlds together. I think everybody everybody gains something. Yeah, it's an eye-opener as well for designers to really kind of embrace these kind of materials which they always thought were only designed for science or for technical applications. So they've really enjoyed being uh, connected to this and being able to put them, incorporate these materials into their work. You mentioned about innovative materials. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about those, Purva? Sure, absolutely. I think when we think of innovative materials, Adele and I tend to think of uh, first and foremost, you know, sustainable or green materials, you know, the terminology um, you know, I think uh, can be different in many areas, but we do tend to gravitate towards materials that are, uh, you know, better for the environment, uh, maybe better for human health and well-being. Um, Adele and I are always fascinated by materials that are, you know, that have a, a really exciting um, or a well-thought-out end of life. I think uh, very much like what you mentioned before, but recycling, reuse, these are values that are really important to us when we think of a material as innovative. Yeah, thank you for that. And and of course, you, you touched the green and the, this podcast is, is all about green materials. Uh, how important is uh, uh, to choose from uh, green materials when it's possible, of course, uh, for the future? Like Purva was saying, you know, for us, it's extremely important. For us, it's really um, a, a very, a, it's something that drives us is to educate, um, you know, the future generations and, and designers into uh, choosing better materials for their products because we know that by choosing a better material, the, a green material, the impact on the planet will be, you know, much more positive. We won't have any extra waste. 
Um, you know, it's also generating value instead of throwing things away uh, and piling up in landfills. We're reusing, repurposing, um, and it's helping keep our planet healthy and our and our health as well. Um, and particularly in the technical and scientific fields, we think, you know, that the, the focus on green materials is essential right now. You know, in the 50s and the 60s, there are so, I think the science world was so fixated on on achieving um, functionality and different kind of performance properties that perhaps the sustainable side was was a little bit overlooked. And it's a great moment now where, where uh, science is also starting to develop what we're calling green chemistry. So we're starting to think of, of uh, the impact on the long term. You know, what are we leaving for our for the new generations? Exactly. And I think one interesting thing to just add on to that is this idea that economically as well, there's a strong case for using green materials because, um, you know, when you use materials like this, there's a lack of waste and pollution. So we're not expending resources trying to clean up after these materials by recycling them or drawing from waste to create these materials. Um, you know, we're generating economic value or regenerating economic value. So um, I think both in terms of environmental well-being you know, human health and well-being and economics, we've got such a good case for using these materials. So definitely very important to choose these materials. Yeah, I think we all need to, to think of, of of the future, not necessarily only our future, but uh, the, the next generations. And um, I think I have one of those difficult questions uh, that I normally uh, like to ask when, when, when I speak with people about um, green materials and, and all the, the environment uh, concerns is, what what qualifies a, a material as green in your opinion of course mm -hmm. i mean that's that's you know a key question and it's a hard question uh you know we do a lot of work on trying to to define you know what sustainability means it's a word that's been overused so much we tend to prefer to use the word regenerative now um so instead of using green or eco or future proof we we tend to go for regenerative which are materials that not only don't harm the planet but actually there are materials that are helping cure it or are helping put it back into a positive um, situation where we're uh, you know, not only not polluting the environment, we're actually removing pollution or instead of uh, you know, building up piles of, in the, of waste and landfill, we're actually putting nutrients back into the planet. So I think for us, green means uh, something that not only doesn't leave damage for the future generations, like you're mentioning, Joel, but also are actually trying to make it a better place for them. You know, it's materials that are versatile and, and offer us solutions that are way beyond short term, but actually, you know, um, are going to be in the future, are going to still be green and, and regenerative. Exactly. I think that net positive quality is what uh, mm -hmm. captures actually is it's a nice way to think about all of these different terms that we associate with green and sustainability. but. We can, we can think of net positive materials which give back more than they take. I think it captures all the qualities that we talk about in these other terms. Thank you for that. I knew, I knew that was a difficult question. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, we at Goodfellow have a, a green production brochure, as you know, um, and that will be available on the end of the podcast. But Adam, uh, from our side, from Goodfellow's side, and of course, you being uh, the sales manager of the, of the company, um, how do you see um, the interest of our customers for um, green materials and the green production everybody wants to use green or sustainable materials or look at their applications and, and products and projects um, to make them holistically as as um, green and sustainable uh, as possible uh, clearly uh, there's there's more difficulties in some sectors 
about achieving that uh, than others where they've got certain um, specifications or, or things they've got to they've got to do but in general I think uh, everyone's moving in that direction I mean uh, over the past I don't know a few years we've, we've seen a lot more inquiries a lot more um, uh, conversations with customers that, that go down go down that route of and, and actually taking that aspect into consideration more and more uh, and I think that the, the struggle for for scientists for engineers for for whoever is you don't know what you don't know so actually going back to the kind of education point i think that's going to be the the kind of key the key driver in it because actually everybody i think now understands the i say everybody i think most people understand the the, the need for need for for us to do this for the planet um but it's about having the tools and the knowledge to to implement it and actually sometimes uh through thinking about that actually you're able to use a green material and actually improve the improve the product as well um through going through that that thought process so uh, I think it's positive. There's still a long way to go. I do agree with that, with you on that one. We we start with this with this um, green uh, brochure a few years ago, and um, last year we've done an update on that that shows that there's uh, people uh, looking for 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 those materials. And uh, uh, and like like uh, um, Dallin Puvo was just saying about the concern on on on, on the choice of materials how difficult it is to balance the technology and, and all the, the advance and, and still keep green without Purva? It's, it's a hard one still, I think, you know, um, I think with a bit of common sense and with, um, you know, dedication, there are huge steps that can be taken. But um, obviously we're used to achieving a certain performance or certain, certain technical capacity with the material through the traditional ways. And we have to start relearning and readdressing the issue of how we could produce better materials but we're definitely advancing and i think there's you know this is what these incredible material innovators are doing they're actually coming up with the solutions and it's it's really i think you know what fascinates us is the mix between science and art it's a designer working alongside science that comes up with these incredible materials that tick both of those boxes i was just going to say i wonder how much you you see the actual the material is one thing but then actually it's at the moment we're going through this phase of, of disruptive technology is in terms of making things as well so you mm -hmm. look at uh, 3d printing and mm -hmm. um, additive manufacturing and those other areas and it's almost like everyone's got to not only learn about new materials but 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 relearn um, how you make things and 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 that means that everybody's got to go through this this idea uh, change in in uh, how they design things in the first place as well which and it, and it all links together in terms of ultimately making something that's that's more sustainable or greener or or reducing weight because that means you use less less energy to run it or and it's such a big big area that you have to consider from so many different sides so I, I, w I wondered from your point of view how much do you think that new processes in terms of being able to make things is impacting the materials that are coming out Definitely a huge impact. And I would add, like, I think what Adele said was safe. That's one, Adam, what you said is two. I think number three in that kind of trifecta of change is really the consumer's expectations. Because I think, um, you know, the materials are changing, the processes are changing. So, you know, people who are making, designing products have to adjust their, their learning and, and kind of adapt to these new technologies. Um, but I think understanding that the consumer's expectations of products have to change as well will allow these wonderful new materials and technologies to actually enter the market and become accessible because we can't 
I think we can't for for these wonderful materials and technologies to actually reach us. We have to understand that perhaps they may not behave exactly as we you know we expected previous products to. We can't expect perhaps the same quantities, the same longevity. You know, um, I I do think uh, new processes and expectations or changed expectations are like. Um, these are the other two really core elements and those have to change and we constantly talk about this in through our work um, that I think that's kind of the third missing element to really make change happen. Yeah, I think that's that's a key point, isn't it? We need to look at these new materials and processes and, and maybe reconsider how we as consumers but also businesses um, look at the the products that are coming out in terms of maybe we can use them in a different way as well. Exactly. And some something that, you know, I think maybe sometimes we have to adjust our expectation and say, okay, this is a product that may not last 10 years. Uh, maybe it's only designed to last two, two and a half years, but that's okay because that is the right thing for the bigger picture. And that means a certain type of production process, a certain type of disposal process um, that's new, but it also gives an opportunity for a really advanced new, you know, sustainable green regenerative material to uh, to be implemented. Um, Purva, is that what you mean by future-proof materials? Um, is that, because you have that on your website, so I'm gonna ask you that question. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think in many ways, Joel, yeah, it is that, uh, you know, we, Adele and I talk about this a lot, just this idea of, uh, you know, it, to us, it's something, it's a, it's a solution or a material or a process that really, uh, you know, that, that extends beyond short term trends. And it's something that's going to remain valuable for years and also allows us to respond to some of these unexpected situations that we're encountering, you know, whether we've seen uh, 2020 uh, came with its own challenges, but we also have these long lasting problems of pollution, you know, mounting waste, uh, public health crises of many types. So I, I think to us, Future Proof is a material that really responds to these bigger challenges and it's, uh, it's far beyond just simple trends. And I think also just to add on to that, it's not only the material being Future Proof, sometimes, you know, it's also the designers are future proof. They're already looking ahead with, you know, new materials that are coming out. They're already thinking about what potential problems could come from them. So it's not like they just put a material out into the market and they just let it sit. You know, they're always actively thinking about now the impact. And I think that's a huge change from the way people, you know, designers worked before. Being future proof, they're always thinking ahead of the impact of their innovation and their materials in the market. Thank you very much. What was the most exciting material that you found out that could be recycled uh, um, since you started this project? I, I think, uh, you know, and, I, and Adele and I have uh, different and exciting kind of favorites. And uh, I'll start with mine. I think for, for me, uh, I'm very, very excited about carbon-based recycled materials. So, you know, we're hearing a lot about materials that either take um, gases or carbon suit or burnt organic matter, which is known as biochar. Um, and this, these carbon-based materials are being sequestered um, and being turned into really usable formats. You know, we've, we've seen this um, with uh, tiles that have, uh, you know, compacted carbon suit in them. We've seen new thermoplastic materials that have biochar in them. So um, I think that is an interesting line for us of recycled materials where carbon from the atmosphere is being turned into 
um, into you know composites and new really strong composites. Um, in fact, from the um, you know from the green uh, production line at Goodfellow, we really love the idea of the green graphene because um, there we're seeing methane being turned into graphene, which is a super material. So I think that the carbon-based materials uh, excite me a lot right now in terms of recycling and also uh, atmospheric sequestration. Yeah, I guess mine isn't very sophisticated uh, or, or very um, yeah elegant, but it's, it's about garbage. So, you know, one of the things that has come up over and over again with consumers, with designers, the idea of recycling, you know, you always have to put this stress into separating the materials the right way so that you can recycle them, right? You've got to put the bioplastic with the bioplastic, the, the, the plastic with the plastic, the, the organic uh, garbage goes separately. And now they're starting to innovate. What they can do is they can actually recycle the whole garbage altogether. The organic with the plastic, everything mixed together, and they can turn it into recyclable pellets that behave as plastic. So I think that's a great innovation because it really hones in on an issue with consumers. You know, how do you get the whole world to take the time to separate materials? Well, maybe the solution is to find a way to just recycle it all together. So I find that a really exciting innovation. It really is. Yeah, Adele, agreed. It's great to have you, you two here with, with us, uh, uh, because for me, uh, just the fact that we change uh, uh, plastic straws to paper straws was a big, a big change and, of course, had a lot of impact. Adam, do you have any, any favorite material that you, you, you saw uh, or got excited about the fact that it's being reused or recycled? I think, um, having been to, um, obviously not for a while now, but some of the exhibitions um, that the Material Driven have, have curated, uh, um, there's so many um, different textures and different different looks and different properties that all of these different innovators have created. It's difficult to pick one out. I think one thing that I suppose is kind of close to close to us is is um, some material that that we generated as scrap. I think it was some copper copper strip that um, that we would have recycled under normal conditions. Um, we were able to to um, provide that to, to um, artists uh, obviously uh, through through some of the connections and things uh, through, through material driven and actually seeing some of that material from Goodfellow that normally would would be recycled but but actually going into uh, being reused uh, I think that was um, that was really exciting because yeah the, the art kind of spoke to you but also um, uh, yeah it was rather than Rather than it just being thrown away, it was it was being repurposed. We're going to talk about that uh, in in one of the future podcasts, and I, I do agree with you. It's quite exciting to see what a piece of material that we're going to uh, recycle uh, become a, a, a piece of art. Of course, we need to touch on uh, uh, the most difficult part of this subject: price. Um, and um, there's a lots of conversations about that. Of course, it's great to recycle. It's great to um, to do. The, the good uh, um, part of us for the environment, but there's costs of that, and uh, and the materials are more expensive. Um, you, how do you um, convince people uh, that green is the future and we need to pay the extra? That's a good question, Joel. I guess you got to work with the right people. Um, we always say, you know, if you do want to make a change, if you want to be a pioneer, if you want to set the example, you do have to put in a little bit of an investment. But in the long term, you know, there's evidence that it can end up being affordable and commercially viable. We just need to get everybody on board. So I think there's a lot of uh, talk explaining the long term benefits. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the other thing is um, when we speak to, you know, whether it's an individual designer or a brand or a consumer goods company that comes to us and they're looking to make better choices and actually implement these materials. Um, I think one of the things that we find ourselves doing is kind of giving them a bit of a heads up that it this is not going to be a you know, simple case of substitution. Even design will have to adapt. Uh, you know, it's not a plug and play uh, sort of environment where, you know, you can take a, a material that was not sustainable and has been used for maybe, you know, I, I think 20 to 25 years, and you can immediately substitute another material in there. I think the the, the processes, the design, the, the entire journey has to transform in response to some of these better materials. Um, and that, that actually does help make it more economically viable, uh, as opposed to trying to just substitute something simply. So I think it is, it's a combination of different efforts and then we find them more likely and more open to investing in some of these better material choices and eventually does bring the cost down um, if, it, if it's a bit of a holistic effort rather than a just simple substitution. Adam, um, not all the green materials are uh, more expensive or much more expensive than, than uh, conventional uh, materials. Is that right? Yeah, it really depends on, on the material, um, how much development's gone into the area. Uh, obviously, we're, we're further down the road with with some material areas than others in terms of sustainability. I think uh, I'd echo what, um, what's been said already, is you have to have people to look at the big picture in the long term. Uh, I think slowly as, as a society or whatever, we're realising that everyone's going to have to pay for this eventually, one way or another. However, that, that's done with, with climate change. Um, so actually spending a little bit more now on something that that's going to help that actually will be better for, for everyone in the long run. And also, if you can um, make some changes to your application to your product, which means it consumes less energy or you're using a more innovative material, then actually you can, even if you're paying a little bit more for the material, maybe you're saving costs uh, further down the line as well. So you have to look at it as a big picture. I think you're right. That's that's the way to to approach all the all the green uh, um, uh, production and, and materials. Um, I think we're getting very close to the end. But uh, a couple more questions, Adele and Purva. If we can give uh, uh, some advice for people that are listening to the, the podcast, what will be your best advice for reducing waste at home? It's a good one. We keep thinking about this. Uh, you know, just looking around our own homes. Um, I think maybe Joel, uh, starting small is really good. Um, and I think for us, you know, packaging, uh, you know, small everyday products are a really great starting point and we can make those choices. You know, anytime we're uh, placing a supermarket order or we're buying uh, something, you know, something small that we're going to use every single day, I do think uh, packaging and and making use of, you know, cho choosing better packaging and making use of reusable products rather than disposables is a good, um, is definitely a good starting point for us uh, in terms of the, you know, for, for something that everyone can do. And then uh, this actually ties back into what Adele said about the, the wonderful um, garbage-based material is uh, that reading labels is really uh, something we can individually do, you know. We can take the time to actually read what a product 
uh, has on it, you know, how it needs to be disposed correctly. Maybe it needs to be separated from the rest of our trash, or maybe this is something we might even be able to compost in specific conditions. I think those are tiny ways that we can make a little bit of an extra effort at home and make a little bit of a move towards, um, you know, reducing waste and achieving more sustainability at home. Yeah, and I think, you know, just reusing and recycling, you know, whenever you're going to go throw something away, I'm not, and, and I mean bigger things, it's not like packaging, but clothes, you know, an old coat or a washing machine, think again if you can repair it, if you can reuse it, if you could give it to someone. And I think there's a way of creating a, a closed loop system that will always help the planet. If we can't have uh, um, an Adal and a Purva in our lives to remind us of this every day, how can people uh, um, get your services? If we have anyone listening that want to know more about uh, Materials Driven, how can they uh, reach you? Uh, well, I, you know, I think we are uh, super approachable, whether it's over email or Instagram. You know, I think our, our, uh, we love putting out, uh, you know, content and ideas on Instagram. So that's a great channel for everyone to reach us. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd be happy to anybody who con- connects with us through these channels. We'd be happy to tell them about the different kinds of work that we do, uh, both as educational partners or as consultants. Uh, we really uh, take pride in working with a whole range of entities, all the way from you know individuals to uh, really fun you know beauty brands or uh, you know I think uh, for us it's really about that diversity. So we're open to so many different conversations. Uh, someone just has to send us a note, and we'd be happy to have a chat with them. Yeah, it can range from consultancies where we help brands find new materials to a more educational approach where we can you know assist the team in discovering new ideas and kind of inspire them to move forward. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I, I don't know if we've touched upon this, but uh, uh, Joel, Adele and I both have design backgrounds. So uh, there's actually a whole range of uh, projects that we've done where uh, we think of ourselves as project managers. So we actually help companies uh, go all the way from concept to the delivery of a product. So in that case, someone might come to us with a vision, but we'll actually be with them on the whole journey from conceptualizing this, uh, you know, whatever it is that they're planning to create, whether it's a space or, uh, you know, or a packaging or a, or something really small or uh, they're like wanting to source materials, but we'll take them all the way to delivery as well. So we do like to use our design caps as well, uh, in addition to the material research aspect, which is really crucial to our work. Well, thank you very much. And of course, the great work that uh, uh, you two do f- for us with the Materials Hub website, uh, curating and, and of course getting all the information about those amazing materials and lots of information that we have available on there um, too. Thank you. Um, I think that's all. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, our first international calls, uh, one I think from Spain and the other one from Texas. Uh, yes. Alan Purva, thank you very much for your time. It's, it's great to speak with you about this this subject. Adam, we're going to have uh, uh, more conversations uh, throughout the, the uh, podcasts. Um, thank you very much for, for, for joining us. Uh, of course, all the information will, um, you can see it in the end of uh, the podcast uh, regarding the websites and uh, also links to um, uh, the social media platforms uh, that um, the Purva and Adele uh, mentioned. Thank you very much for your time and speak with you soon. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Cheers. Yeah, thank you for having us here. It's such a pleasure. Materials inside and outside in have teamed up in their mission to make the art and materials world more accessible to everyone. 
we invite you to join us by sharing this podcast and donating on our website Materials Hub, where 100% of the donations will go towards supporting artists from marginalized groups. Outside In pretty much started on an experience that happened in a period of my life when I'd sort of fallen out of love with the art world and I ended up volunteering for a charity working with people with learning disabilities. I was immediately struck by the talent of the people at that table. You know, at that time I just remember thinking, oh my God, how lucky, you know, what, what, what a thing to have found. And just seeing how inspired and passionate they are about what they've been doing is really rewarding. One of the latest exhibition openings we had was for our recent national exhibition called Environments. For the artists to be in that space and witness people really valuing their work, buying it, just was so special to watch. So the, the aims for the charity are to uh, see it become truly national and people will then know the name outside in. The aspiration is to change the art world and you know you'd hope at a certain point that you'd become you know not needed. Which is why it's still so important that we are running these exhibitions that we are, that we're representing the artists that we do represent. I hope you know we'd get to that point where the art world is a much fairer place um, yeah and then I could step back. <laughs> Also here with us today, we have Stephen Aldersley, CEO at Goodfellow. Stephen has come to talk to us about the green side of Goodfellow and what we do as a company to remain environmentally friendly. Hello, Stephen. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this podcast about green materials. Hi, Joe. So um, we just have a few questions. We want to know, um, as a CEO of, of, of Goodfellow, we want to know um, your opinion and your ideas about some of those green issues. So the first question is, is really about that, is um, sustainability is more important now than ever been. How long has been Goodfellow focused on providing green materials? Goodfellow has supplied green materials for a number of years now, uh, but over the last three years or so, we've tended to focus more on this aspect of our range uh, to meet the demands of, of our customers. Not all materials have a green alternative. Can you tell us what steps Goodfellow take to ensure our materials are as environmentally friendly as possible? Well, as you know, Goodfellow supplies small quantities of materials and there is no minimum order quantity. So what this means is that scrap is minimized as an end user can order as little or alternatively as much as is required for a given application. Also, of course, wherever possible, the packaging which we use to ship our materials around the world uses sustainable and recycled materials. Thank you. You talk about a minimum order quantity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how work and how important that is for our customers? Sure. Yeah, we have no minimum order quantity, as I said. And so what that means is that an end user or customer can order exactly what is actually needed for their given application. And by small quantity, what we mean is that if somebody wants, say, a few square centimetres or a few millimetres or centimetres of wire, for example, then we will be more than happy to supply that. Conversely, of course, if somebody wants two or three kilos of product, then we'd also consider that as well. So reducing the waste of materials that uh, the person need to, to use. Absolutely, yeah. Talking about waste, of course, and um, uh, you provide materials uh, to artists and, and designers. How often do you, good fellow, uh, do that? Okay, well, a little bit of history to this. Um, Goodfellow has been supporting artists and designers for a number of years now. 
In fact, I'd been with the company and uh, when I started, the then MD made a point of supporting artists and designers, mainly in the UK, but really anywhere where there was uh, a requirement or really a, a request for assistance. What this meant is that uh, she supported this particular group of people, as well as our more usual customers who are involved in research and development. And when I took over as MD, I simply wanted to continue a tradition which Goodfellow has followed for probably the last 50 years or so. And as for how often we provide waste materials to be repurposed, I think the answer really is as often as possible, as I would prefer that we were able to help someone rather than have materials sent away as simply scrap with little or no value. Thank you very much for that. For this podcast, we have Matthias Driven uh, with us uh, too. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about um, how and when um, did Goodfellow start uh, uh, this partnership with Matthias Driven? Well, I think, as we've said before, I think you can probably answer this better than I can, Joel, because you actually introduced me to the team, I think it was probably about three years or so ago, that we that we met up with Adele, first of all, and then Porvo. I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was a result of a meeting we had with uh, Manuela Cagabar, who used material from Goodfellow as a piece which, I, which piece, uh, the piece was called Altered Vision. And I seem to remember that you and I were at, uh, at an exhibition down at the old fire station gallery in Henley-on-Thames. Manuela had been helped by Aphrodite to sort out the right materials for this particular piece. Manuela knew Adele from Materials Driven. The introductions were affected, I think, to you and then you to me. I think that's how that happened. And I think that probably happened about three years or so ago. But as I said, correct me if I'm wrong, your memory is probably better than mine. That's exactly the way that it was. We we start looking at options to work with in the design and artist world uh, a little bit um, away from the scientific uh, world where Goodfellow is specialist. And uh, and we met uh, um, Adele uh, through um, Manuela uh, and, and of course this work starts being very interesting um steven uh, just another question about this this green uh, concern and the way that goodfellow provides support for customers uh, researching for green options is normally um very uh, time consuming how um, does goodfellow can help the customers to achieve this uh, this is where goodfellow's technicals team comes into its own as they are tasked to identify products which can improve sustainability reduce our carbon footprint and improve green credentials this is a requirement for all of us in whatever area we may be working. When it comes to materials in science and industry, there's a definite focus on reducing the negative impact on the environment, ultimately creating a more sustainable future for ourselves and for generations to come. By identifying suitable products and working closely with our customers and end users of our materials, Goodfellow is able to supply products which are both green as well as being 100% suitable for the required application. Okay, thank you, Stephen. You mentioned the technical team. Um, Aphrodite uh, um, spent some time with us on the podcast, so we're definitely going to mention that again. Our technical team can help the customers uh, to find the, the best uh, material for the application. What about the packaging material that Goodfellow use? We know that the landfills are composed with um, about 35% of those materials. And um, how um, is Goodfellow concerned and how do they a package and our own materials for delivery. Goodfellow supplies products to customers around the world and so we have to ensure that the packaging we use will stand up to this 
and ensure that the material arrives at its destination in the same condition as it left our facility in Huntingdon. A lot of research goes into the type of packaging which is used to ensure that it meets the stringent requirements which we have to meet and, wherever possible, the packaging materials which we use come from sustainable sources and can be recycled, thereby reducing the amount of material that actually has to be thrown away. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to see the concern with 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 the green, and of course we'll talk about that uh, uh, in other uh, other podcasts too. But we have a green production of materials at Goodfellow. What is your uh, view on that, and of course um, your idea of creating this brochure? It's really important because, as I said at the beginning of this, uh, we've been supplying green materials for a number of years now, but obviously over the last few years the focus has has moved very much to sustainability. And Goodfellow wants to ensure that the materials which we do supply meet the requirements of our customers, both from an application point of view and also from a green perspective. We could spend lots of time here talking, but uh, I know uh, working for Goodfellow uh, for the last five years uh, that uh, our concern is not only with materials and packaging, it's also internally. Um, what are the initiatives that uh, Goodfellow has um, been implemented in a workplace uh, for? Um, everyone that works for Goodfellow have a, a more green approach? Gosh, uh, green approach. Well, we've encouraged recycling wherever possible. We we try to go for a paperless office. It's not always as easy as, it's, as it may sound. And as I said, we, we encourage uh, recycling and the use of sustainable products wherever wherever is actually possible both in the office and the way in which we in the way in which we process our, our materials. What do you think, uh, with your experience, uh, being in, in the materials world for, for a few years now, um, is the future for the materials? Well, Goodfellow's been doing what we're doing now for 50 years plus. Uh, there will always be a requirement for product, uh, for research, development, prototyping and specialised manufacturing. I believe that Goodfellow will continue to have a significant role in this space, but I think that the impact of the implementation of green materials, of sustainable materials, will come to the fore uh, going forward and Goodfellow is well placed to actually meet those requirements. Thank you for joining us today Stephen. I know how busy your schedule is so your time is very much appreciated. For more information on Goodfellow's green mission you can find our green production brochure on materialshub.com website and also on a link on the end of this podcast. This brochure also outlines the green product range which we offer, some interesting facts and figures, and also a material selection chart which allows you to compare the green properties of our range at a glance. Up next, we have Andy Harris, a forward-thinking architect who has a fascinating career. His approach to architecture is to work with and around nature rather than destroying it. Andy is also a lecturer, inspiring the next generation to remain green. Hello, Andy. Thank you very much for joining me. Hi, my pleasure. When did you decide that you wanted to be an architect? Uh, was that something that came from your childhood? When I was a kid, I was very good at drawing. And one day I, I remember when I was probably six years old in primary school, my teacher asked me to draw my house. And, and what I ended up doing is I drew the housing plan and like like an like an architectural plan so I, I i drew the layout of my house 
And then I, I, I quite vividly remember the, the teacher saying that um, I should be an architect. I didn't know what an architect was, so um, that stuck to me. And um, as, as I got older, um, my interest in architecture and design started to grow. Um, I was always very keen artist. I, I used to draw and paint on the walls and, and uh, on every surface I, I could find. I, I used to draw every, uh, houses, uh, people. So I do, I do remember also my parents said I, I should try to find a, a profession allow me to earn a little bit of money as opposed to just being an artist because I, I, I wanted to be an artist. I got an identical twin brother. He also was very good at drawing and he's still very good at drawing and um, and we both um, decided to become an architect. We didn't study together. Uh, I um, had a year out in the States and then I, when, when I came back my, my brother was already in university. Um, so he started before me. So he always claims that he's he's the one that um, started it all. But um, but then uh, yeah, we both became architects. We didn't study in the same schools. I graduated in London. He graduated in Chile, my home country. I always wanted to be an architect, and and I think I'm quite privileged and lucky to be able to work in something I always wanted to do. Um, most people actually fall into a career. I chose my career since I since I was very very young. So there's a there's a twin brother. How's that worked with the competition in between you two? As every artist, I think we're both very critical of each other's work. Um, um, I ended up working for a very famous architect. I mean, the, probably the most famous living architect in the world. Uh, so there's a lot of admiration for that from my brother. He, he always admired what, what I've achieved. But of course, yeah, he's, he's, he's very, very good, very well known uh, back in Chile. He's, he's got his own little practice and also works for a big practice as well. So he's, he's designed more, more houses than I ever dreamed of designing. And it's very good, but we, every time we we share our share our designs, there's always a critic. Um, but it's very constructive. There's no comp there's no mean competition, but but it's it's kind of like uh, inherent uh, designers' competition in a way. Uh, in a way that we always uh, find a few flaws, so we can actually improve or, or or have our input in our designs. I don't think I could actually we could actually work together uh, because we're quite different in terms of temper and. and and drive that, that's 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 a privilege not being able to work together uh, allows us to to admire each other in a way you now work for for a big, a big company uh, uh, forces and partners your career um, has evolved to some big projects do you want to tell us a little bit more about your proudest moments yeah many i mean when, when i joined the practice um uh, i joined to work in a project which was a joint venture between uh, a, a very famous architect, a French architect called Jean Nouvel, uh, and uh, Norman Foster. So we were designing a, um, a an office office complex where now Bloomberg, um, the headquarters of Bloomberg, is also a Foster and Partners project. But at the time, it was a joint venture between two of the architects that I admire the most. So uh, when I joined the practice, um, I just couldn't believe I was I was working on the in, in the big leagues and and I was fulfilling a dream of, of working. Um, with architects that I really admire. Um, I think my, one of my proudest moments would be probably joining Foster's because I, I got, I got um, handpicked when they were scouting for talents, uh, as, as they say, in, in, um, in my university, in the Architectural Association School of London. Um, and then I got offered a job and, um, and then to end up working in a uh, joint venture between two of the most famous architects in the world. I just couldn't believe it. And then after that, I started designing things that I never dreamed of designing or working on, on projects I never thought I would end up working in, in like um, a spaceport for Richard Branson and then the headquarters for um, DJI, which is a drone company. 
uh, and then ended up in, in, a, in one of the most uh, uh, important projects in London that we've had in Battersea Power Station, um, which is on the largest uh, construction site in London and the UK at the moment. So it, there have been many, many, many proud moments in, in my career at Foster and Partners, but also I managed to have a successful academic career as well. So I've been, been able to lecture around the world on biometric design, which is something that I can explain later. I meant to, to ask you a little bit about that and uh, uh, your approach to the design and architecture. Do you want to talk a little bit ab about that? Yeah, sure. So when I was doing a, a master degree in London at the Architectural Association, I managed to come across two uh, very interesting research papers from a uh, a scientist that was interested in nature called George Jeromides is one of the um, uh, precursors of, of, um, of biometric design, which is design inspiring nature. So my approach to, to design started to evolve into um, getting inspiration from nature and, and, and sustainability and sustainable design. If you think about how nature has evolved, it's, it's literally millions of years of evolution and, and uh, nature has perfected its design for survival and um, to use uh, the natural resources and whatever we have at our own disposition in a more optimized and, and efficient way. So my approach to design is, is getting that inspiration from nature and deriving properties from it. So for example, I, I work on the design of a pavilion that resembles the, um, a, a bird's call or, or a, a, a bone tissue um, and has the, the structural properties of bone tissue. And, and also we, uh, with a group of uh, other designers, uh, uh, did small researches on, uh, on cacti and, and plants that can uh, survive harsh climates. And, and architecture should be the same. We should not be imposing what we want to design in a certain place. We need to interrogate the, the site, interrogate the location, the climate, uh, and all the external properties of that site in order to design something efficiently. So um, in terms of materiality, for example, we should investigate what what is the, the most um, common or more abundant resource around the area in order to create something that has materials that are efficient and, and, and withstand the local weather, for example, the local economies, um, and also has a, a green connotation. Transporting materials is very expensive, and and I know that that uh, sustainable materials and su sustainability has a, a stigma of being a little bit more expensive than common materials, and it's only to do because of mass production, because uh, sustainable materials are actually not being mass produced. They're actually inherent to local areas. So if I'm designing something in, in uh, East Asia, for example, um, bamboo is very abundant and um, why not use bamboo? Bamboo is a fantastic fibrous uh, material, also a, a product of a millions of years of evolution of, of a plant that, uh, that um, can grow very quickly and uh, doesn't need many resources to thrive. Um, it, it can propagate very easily and very quickly. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, so, so my approach to design, it's, it's based on nature. It's, it's, it's actually uh, inspiring nature. And, and, uh, and that's, what the, that's what's called biometric design, bio from life. From the Greek, Greek life and uh, mimetic of, from mimesis, from uh, resembling or copying. So we're not copying nature, we're actually deriving or I am deriving properties from nature to design. So that's that's pretty much my approach. I got no, no style, uh, so to speak, it's, it's, it's an approach to design. 
really interesting. And is that is that a kind of an evolution from the organic architecture from uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, or, or is that something totally different? Uh, m many people made that comparison. Uh, I think uh, what, what the difference between um, architects like um, like Frank Lloyd Wright and 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 the architects from the Art Nouveau movement is that they, they got uh, an aesthetic inspiration in nature. It's more, it was more about patterns and and uh, and styles instead of uh, something uh, much deeper that had to do with materiality and and how the materials materials themselves can actually um, be part a fundamental part of the creation of a design. So, so um, I think what my approach is to think about materials uh, at the same time I start thinking about a design or a project, and that materiality has to do with um, understanding the site and the conditions where this project is going to be placed or, or designed in a way. And and how important is the green? Uh, you already talk about your your approach to to your design. How important is the green uh, in architecture in general? It's imperative that we have to design uh, thinking about um, sustainability and sustainable design. Uh, we are uh, reaching a point of uh, of overpopulating this world and and um, over consuming the uh, the natural resources. So so to think about um, designing sustainably means to uh, think about designing for the future and and for the uh, for the future of mankind in a way. So so uh, it's very important. So. Uh, it's important to take in, into consideration uh, uh, not polluting, using resources that are renewable, trying not to use materials that are uh, are not uh, biodegradable. Um, architecture, I mean, most buildings should have a lifespan, and they, most most buildings do. That people say or architects say say that the lifespan of a building should be 60 years, no more than that. And and I do respect. Um, ancient architecture and, and it's great to have gothic churches and cathedrals and and, and then and also uh, roman temples and, and greek temples but the reality thing is that because we are actually getting to a point that we're overpopulating the world we cannot design thinking that our building will last forever if we design thinking about using the materials that are um, recycled and and have a life lifespan like we do that i think that's a fun, that would be a fantastic approach um so so it's very important I, I think sustainability and it's not a trend anymore it's not a movement it's actually a fundamental need uh for all of us uh, as designers as occupiers as people if we want um the human race to to um, remain in this world anyway uh nature will will thrive without us anyways and it's, it's something that you can see in a, in a in an everyday life if, if you check the concrete and and every single crack has plants thriving and growing that's how resilient nature is nature will will go on without us without a doubt but if we want to remain in this world we need to think ascertainably we need to we need to work with nature on this one to be able to to stay for a little bit longer <laughs> Absolutely. In which point of a project you start thinking about the environment and the nature and, and the surroundings? What stage do you start from the beginning, uh, of, on the beginning of the project, or on the end of the project? Always at the beginning. I think the biggest mistake and misconception is that sustainable is sustainability is something that is an added value to the project and, and can, can come at the end. Uh, it has to come uh, at the beginning, at the conception of the project, and and this is, has something to do with economics, economics as well. Um, if you want to save money on on ventilation, for example, or cooling, you just use natural ventilation. But to do that, you need to understand 
Um, and you have to have to have a sustainable strategy. So it has to come at the beginning, at the conception of the project. So if, if it happens at the end, it becomes expensive because it's, a, it's an afterthought. And also you fall into the same stigma that I was uh, talking about earlier, it's that people think that sustainable and green design is expensive. And it's just because it's something that it was not thought at the beginning of the project, at the conception of the project. So it has to be at the beginning. And how do you choose which materials to use when planning a project? Usually you have to interrogate the site. For example, if I'm designing something in the desert, you might find that materials are, that are abundant, like stone materials and, and materials that actually withstand dry weather and, and extreme heat could be, could be available. So, so um, to start thinking about materiality, yeah, you need to understand where that project will be located. Uh, obviously, the economy of, of things um, uh, pushes to actually um, design things in using common materials that, such as steel, concrete. But there's a new trend or new 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 way of, of designing that has has been happening uh, within the last ten years, probably or, or five years. Uh, that materials that are um, recycled and, and that are local are being used. Um, we as Foster and Partners are designing a project in an airport in, in, um, in Southeast Asia made of bamboo and it's a huge structure and people would think bamboo is, it's, is regarded as cheap and the only reason why it's regarded as cheap is because it's abundant and that means that it's, it's sustainable. Uh, we're, we're not having to manufacture it, um, process it, uh, it's, it's biodegradable, but also re re resists um, tension and, and, uh, and you can get huge expands uh, between uh, beams and columns uh, through, uh, through bamboo because it's, it's fantastically elastic and, and resilient. Um, uh, so when we think about materiality at work uh, at Fosters, is usually uh, when we start designing the project and, and we have we envision how this project would fit in the in the context. Um, uh, we, we're using a lot of timber as well at the moment. We're using uh, natural stones. Uh, I was working in a project in Greece not long ago uh, where they have a, a marble quarry uh, and and it's a very abundant material there. So we decided to um, design uh, in marble and, um, and, and proper marble not, and not the marble finish or marble um, coating or layer. It's actual marble. You can actually building with marble blocks in a way. So, so yeah, it, it, when, when we think about materiality is, is at the beginning of the project. Sometimes when we are doing projects for clients that have their own vision, we end up using common materials or, 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 or materials that are used before. Um, but but uh, we love to innovate. I love to innovate, and and uh, even my thesis at the Architecture Association was to design a pavilion in resin, and it's something that has never been done before, and it's a resin that resembles the bone tissue properties. Um, so so yeah, so it's very important, materiality. We have some image of, of those uh, on a website, and we're going to have the website in the end, so. Um everyone that is listening can go and see and see that. You also have done a project that I know, um, I think it was something like a canopy. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that project? Absolutely. So, so um, biometric design is actually understanding not just the way our, our living organisms behave, it's also understanding why they behave in such ways. So uh, if you think about um, uh, a pine cone. A pine cone opens when the uh, the environment is moist. There's a lot of moisture around uh, for uh, that creates the ideal 
um, conditions for the pine cone to thrive and to grow uh, as, a, as a tree. But the behavior of the pine cone has got nothing to do with a, a complex system inside the pine cone or, or, uh, or as we have like neurons or, or, or a motorized system. It's, it's ha it has to do with the fibers of the, of the, the wood that the pine cone is actually made of. So um, we took the inspiration of, of, uh, of uh, using a, a pine cone and, and, the, and the fibers of the pine cone and uh, the, the, the timber uh, to create a very thin layer for a canopy that would actually curl up uh, when when uh, the environment is moist and, and there's a lot of moisture in the environment and and, uh, and and the environment's wet because of the fibers. The fibers that contract when they get wet. Um, so imagine if we're if we're to design a, the, a canopy that or a roof for a, a, a nightclub that uh, is actually um, closed um, at night, but when it gets busy and then there's a lot of a, 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 sweat of, from the people and, and, and a lot of moisture around, the canopy will open automatically because of the fibers. So so it's got nothing to do with a motorized system, it's got nothing to do with a complex um, uh, mechanical system. It has only to do with how the materials uh, and, and the materials we're using and how the materials are applied. So in this case, it is a very thin layer of timber, of a uh, pine timber, allows uh, the canopy to behave in, in a way um, a mechanical uh, canopy would so it will open when it's when it's very wet and, and and there's a lot of moisture in the air and it will close automatically or go back to the original shape when it dries up because the, the fibers the, they they release the water and then they stretch uh, they stretch in a way when when they get moist and then they relax when they're dry it's fantastic so so that's what that's what my approach to design is is to interrogate the material uh, and never impose a beha behavior to material. You interrogate a material to understand its properties, its attributes, and design from there. Um, if we start imposing a behavior to uh, to materials, we end up doing something that is expensive, that it doesn't last, and it doesn't respond to the environment. And, and that's that's the interesting thing. You are actually taking advantage of what the nature gives you uh, to design and, and to create your 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 buildings instead of going against uh, against that um do you have a favorite materials uh, uh, to work with favorite material will be timber at the moment and, and timber is because one of the properties that i explained earlier uh, it's uh, that has these properties that actually can behave differently uh, with uh, different weather conditions but also is highly recyclable and uh, also um, renewable I'm not saying that we should uh, create a massive deforestation of, of the of the forest to to use timber. I'm I'm thinking, or uh, or what my, my vision is, to use timber that has been used before, salvage timber as we call it, and and design with it. And also timber can actually be manufactured in a different way to create a more robust materials as well. Uh, timber has a, a high resistance to fire as well. And is a noble material. It brings warmth to to uh, design and architecture, and uh, and uh, and every uh, every design we, we do, it's it, it you need to have that warmth because uh, nobody wants to live in a in a glass and steel building anymore or, or concrete building anymore. There's a lot of um, conscious about um, going back to nature. Um, so timber would be something that at the moment I'm very interested on. Um, I used to have a, a vast interest on resins um, and, and eco resins. Uh, resins actually derived from um, uh, organic uh, materials. Um, yeah, um, I, I've gone through phases. I remember um, I was obsessed with uh, designing in uh, 
in glass when I started uh, working at Foster's and, and then obsessed with designing um, honeycomb structures uh, with uh, composites. Um, but, but that changes and it changes because uh, the world's changing. The world is actually asking us to design in a more sustainable way and to be a little bit less um, um, self-conscious and, 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 and probably think about, about the survival of the species in a way and, and, and our world because we're polluting our world. Yeah, I think I think is is really important. I was, I, was, I was listening and I was thinking: is that is that a question of being fashionable? Is it a question of being? Uh, uh, you, you said changing your your uh, outlook on the materials, and uh, I think we all kind of go through different phases of enjoying different things. And I remember, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the the, the concrete and the cement was something that it was very popular in houses, and then suddenly things changed to. To, there was a period of, of glass and, and you write, you see um, outside uh, the wood is, is taking uh, back its place. Um, there's a big conversation about, of course, the green materials and the cost of the green materials. And you already explained some of, you know, uh, approach. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier um, the, the example of, of the airport that, that was designed in, in bamboo. Um, in, in a question of, of the, the cost uh, or the, the, the the price of the materials um, is, is is a question. How can you justify the cost to choose green? As I said, it has to start at the conception of the project. Uh, the, one of the reasons why we decided to use bamboo is because it was cheaper. So, so most people have that misconception that adding uh, a green uh, label to a project um, means more expensive materials. But what we cleverly did is that investigated what's the most common material in in the local community and and, and place where we are designing that project. So, um, so I think um, what I'm trying to do now, or we're trying to do, is to break that stigma of sustainable means expensive or green design means very expensive. That's not true. I think if you have a clever way of designing, a, a, a clever strategy for design, when you when you decide what to uh, or what material you're going to use at the very early stages, based on the local uh, on, on the on the local market and the local material abundance, in a way, um, you can actually design very cheaply. Um, same with uh, a project that we did in uh, one of the projects that I had the opportunity and, and privilege to work on when I first uh, joined the practice was the the spaceport for Richard Branson. Uh, and there was a, a debate on how to create a double curved surface um, in the desert that would actually uh, be quick and easy to build and uh, would not have to cons would consume less resources in terms of, of transport and manufacturing. Um, so uh, the the architect in charge at the time decided to use a, a rubber roof. A rub rubber could actually do that double curved surface with a, without a single effort, without having to uh, have molds or or, uh, or ex extended or expensive ways of manufacturing, and it was something that was very uh, was very abundant in in the local market. So there's a, there's a, a rubber uh, factory not far from Albuquerque where, where the uh, the uh, the spaceport actually is located, and they uh, they decided to use that rubber, and I was I that stuck to, stuck with me. It wasn't obviously my decision because I was very junior in in the office, but I was very impressed that that they could actually come up with such a clever um, use of material and clever solution. Um, so that's why it's very it's very important to uh, to think about materiality when you start designing, not at the end. Sometimes just invest that time on on, on research and see what uh, where the building is going to be uh, uh, built and and just use the materials uh, around. Um, 
I know, I know that there's some regulations uh, in Portugal, the country I came from, uh, regarding green spaces. And I know that uh, um, you already mentioned the project uh, at Batasseas. Um, and I know there's similar regulations in UK. How did you get around with the need of, of, of green spaces in a building like, uh, in a project like the one in Batasseas? Again, very cleverly, we decided to uh, put the park at the top of the building. So the, the whole footprint of the building or the whole roof of the building is actually a park. It's not a garden, it's an actual park. It's, it's a 700 meters long park. Um, so because uh, the the area where the, the, the project is being built is so densely built, there was no actual space for a, a green park or a green green space. So we decided to, to, to put it in the roof. Uh, it, it was a decision that came from, from the uh, the directors of the company and I think I, that was it's very inspiring inspiring in my work environment or the office I work on work work in is that they are all very conscious about uh, sustainability and it comes from the top to the bottom so the, obviously I worked on the facade I didn't work in the in the design of the of the park but I, I, I think that that was a very very clever solution so so there's always ways to to add the green green spaces to a project you have to be clever about it uh, you can use roofs uh, roofs are usually at the moment most of the roofs are actually empty spaces are uh, full of, of uh, of plant, which is mechanical um, ventilation, uh, but to use one of the largest uh, surfaces in in a project or in a building uh, for green as a green space is fantastically clever and it works. And and um, and and after the the design of of, of Batasi, many other projects are actually um, mimicking that that strategy to use uh, the roofs as a green space. Mm. Uh, the project is is quite interesting. Of course, there's there's image of that on, on different websites, but um, the Forsen Partners have uh, images of, of the project. And you also mentioned that you you um, you inspire other people uh, to become architects as, as, as a teacher, as a professor. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, that side of your career. Well, when I was studying at the Architectural Association, um, because I, I started to do a, um, a research with uh, scientists and, and people from uh, other doctrines and, and disciplines a desire for, for uh, sharing my knowledge started to grow in me I had the privilege of being asked to become a tutor at the Architectural Association uh, where I can actually um, teach uh, what I'm more passionate passionate about uh, which is design and, and designs by nature but also you use the latest um, tools for designing such as uh, advanced uh, softwares that will actually mimic the uh, behavior of, of a living organism. I've been teaching um, for 15 years now and uh, and I because I've been carrying uh, I carried on doing my research I've been able to uh, to lecture around the world in uh, in biometric design so it's, fa it's fantastic to see younger generations getting that inspiration uh, for what you're more passionate about but also when I started I was very young so I started um, lecturing around the world when I was uh, in my late 20s and to see a room full of people that were uh, twice my age uh, listening to my lecture was something that I, I mean I still remember I, I was so moved and I was so proud that um, you see it now with with the Greta Thunberg, you know, you see this little girl trying to inspire adults and, and tell them this is the way we should be doing these things. You guys have been doing it wrong. Uh, obviously, my, my approach wasn't that aggressive. I, I was I was trying to teach um, a new a new way or a new approach of this uh, or new ways to design. Um, but um, but it's it's I think it's the most rewarding thing in life is to be able to inspire. I think we're all here in this world 
to contribute in a way with society, with uh, uh, humanity in a, in, a, in a larger scale, but also with the people around us. And, uh, and, and it's just so beautiful to be able to, to uh, move people and, and, and inspire people from all ages through something that you're very passionate about. And I think it goes not just in, in, on design, it goes um, beyond that. It goes inspire people uh, uh, being a role model for other people, for example. And, and many different uh, disciplines have different uh, passions in a way. Uh, so people are passionate about singing, for example, or drawing or, or uh, even uh, uh, using computer software, IT, and to, to see them passionately talk about these things and try to teach everyone uh, the, the skills that they have. That's one of my main goals. And I think it should be a goal for, for all society to be able to share knowledge. And I think that's that's fundamental. So yes, I'm, I'm very proud. That's a great, a great message. And of course, that's, that's what we also want to achieve here, inspire people to see things from, from different angles and not just stick to what is easier to do. Uh, what do you think is the future for the architecture around the world? You'll have to have a more aggressive approach to sustainability. Um, because as I said earlier, and in the very early stages of this conversation, that the resources uh, that we're using are being depleted. Um, so uh, obviously, concrete and steel is not as abundant as it used to be. Um, uh, so we need to start thinking about recycling materials, start to uh, think about what are the materials that we should be using um, in different locations, not not trying to replicate buildings that we've done, we done in, in, in uh, in, for example, in the Middle East and replicate them in Norway, for example, because the locations are so different, buildings and materials behave differently. So I think the future of architecture will be a sustainable um, approach. And, and, and I'm pretty certain that not just for strong partners, but many other practices are actually um, having that same approach of, of designing sustainably and, um, and using um, sustainable materials. Um, also, it has to do with uh, with costs. So, so now that people that more designers and and and, and uh, people have realized that that the the costs are uh, inherently high because of transport uh, to use local materials, I think that would be key. Um, I, I was born in a country that has an abundance of, of natural resources. It's got timber in Patagonia. It's got concrete. It's got a, co a copper mine. So I remember doing a, my degree project in, in Chile, based on a, on a building based on um, on a concrete shell. Oh, sorry, on a copper shell. And copper is very expensive in the UK and Europe. It's something that is, is, is uh, regarded as luxury, but in Chile is so abundant and so unique and so noble that. Um, I thought, why not? Why not celebrate it? Why not celebrate the local materials and materiality? And I think that's what we should be doing everywhere. So, so if you see, uh, um, obviously, my, my main uh, occupation and my main job is to work as Fostrand partners. If you see our catalogue of buildings, none of the buildings look the, the same. There's no style. Uh, if you see. I remember uh, when I was studying architecture, there's an architect called Tadao Ando, which I admire deeply. And uh, and he was one of the, the, the architects that actually got me into studying architecture. Um, he designs everything in concrete um, and, and hasn't changed that. Um, so he's got a style. Uh, if you see Fostrand Partners, we don't have a style. We, we have buildings done in concrete, in wood, in timber, in uh, in bamboo now, in resin, and sorry, in, in with a rubber uh, uh, roof, for example, like the spaceport. So there's no style. It's always um, interrogating the local culture, the, the local uh, 
the, the, the local community and also interrogating the site where the project is going to be built. Um, so that I think that's a trend. I think styles are going to be a, a thing of the past. I think uh, everyone will start designing something that has to respond more to local environment and local community. And also the idea of this uh, this episode, this special edition for, for Green Materials is exactly to, to look at a sustainable way of, of, of doing things. Andy, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you. And, uh, and uh, every, everybody uh, in the team is very, very excited to, to, to have you uh, talking and spending this, this uh, bit of time. Um, wish all, all the best for you and, and for your future projects. And uh, uh, we'll see each other around. Thank you very much for letting me take part of this beautiful initiative. I think I'd talk about materials and materiality and sustainable materials is something that uh, is very important and, and, and uh, thank you for giving me the platform to do so. Thank you very much to everyone. Our final guest today is Edie Rex. Edie is a prop and model maker who is also a well-known drag performer. Currently working as a workshop assistant, Edie is inspiring the next generation of performers to be as environmentally friendly as possible. Hello Edie, thank you very much for joining me. Not a problem, thanks for having me. It's great to have time to, to have a conversation with you about what you do and, and you do a lot of things. So um, a, a model maker, a prop designer and a drag barbarian, you really know how to use materials. Uh, um, which one of those passions came first and how did they develop? Uh, well, it's a bit of a mishmash, really, because um, when I was younger, I used to be really into sort of old horror films, you know, like the uh, John Carpenter ones. And that kind of made me go want to go into uh props in films so i studied to do that studied model making um went into the film industry uh and then kind of realized that i wanted to do something on the side so that's kind of how i started doing drag really because uh that's it's nice very free performance style so i started doing that and then they kind of converged into this weird kind of proppy performance thing that i do now really and and uh, um does that need, because of course, uh, model, props and, and drag, of course, normally is connected with being expensive. Does it need to be expensive? Uh, not at all. Again, it's one of those things where a lot of them have uh, both films and and uh, drag all have their kind of roots in quite a DIY. Uh, yeah, there's quite DIY, really. Um, so you know, if you look at sort of really old drag, you know, dates back to like sort of 1500s even and often it would be people using what they've got around them to make their costumes and create their looks and even more recently it's only pretty much since since the the mainstream popularity of drag that's become sort of linked to it's got to be fashionable and expensive but it really doesn't need to be and again the same with film it, you know if you look at back at the old Star Wars films in the 80s uh, half the props are like um, yogurt pots I think I saw a thing where an asteroid is a shoe and a potato like all the props are just made of what they could find um and it's only more recently that suddenly budgets become ridiculously expensive and everything has to be perfect and all about how much you spent on it rather than actually what you've made um so it's uh i'm trying to take everything sort of back to its roots certainly in my own with my own drag of trying to go back to recycling reusing things um rather than you know creating more waste and more uh, mess really. <laughs> and where do, where do you source your materials from? You already said you, you try to recycle as much as you can, but where do you get your materials from? Uh, a mix of places really. So in terms of prop making, obviously, because we we try and use proper things. So uh, 
different you know use different companies and different suppliers and try to use sort of local businesses as well if you need to get a very specific gold paint we'll try and support like a smaller business um and then often with my drag i'll go oh this if we've got leftover material or scrap material that ends up in the bin i'll then pilfer it and then use it in turn for my drag so i'll um I do a lot of bin diving, to be honest, <laughs> or use leftovers and bits that other people don't want or of chucking out. Um, and then they'll kind of hoard things, which is not good. It means my place is full of junk, but um, one day I'll turn them into something wonderful, hopefully. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great way to, to, to recycle. So from, from that uh, uh, rubbish bin uh, collection, what is your best find? Oh, uh, I think one of my most, my favorite looks I've done was uh, I got a load of, um, you know you get those sort of fake sunflowers sort of flower things so i think the sunflowers have been used in the show but the stalks are all discarded so i pilfered those and managed to use them to make like a giant minotaur head um which i wore at a at a show basically with the brief well the brief i gave to myself was to make a passively aggressive large headpiece because um just to try and take up space because as a kind of uh, a female body drag performer we don't really get to take up that kind of space so making a really large hat kind of did that because <laughs> i was on a panel for you know explaining how to make things for drag and not all the other um performers there were kind of internationally famous and then there was little old me in my massive hat just trying to take up room so that's probably one of my favorite bin dives um but i've also made uh over lockdown i made like a headpiece and beard out of loo rolls I made like a bouquet of flowers using old loo roll um, cardboard tubes. I've also made a beard out of old computer parts. Uh, so I've done a whole mix of things really. It's, it's hard to pick out a favourite but those ones kind of stick out at the moment. Yeah, what got our, our attention was uh, your looks and, and you have them, some some pictures on, on your Instagram um, and we're going to have a link for your Instagram in, in the end of the podcast so people can have a look. But they're quite incredible when, when you look at the, the final result and think about where, what material did you use to do that. Um, the idea of this podcast is to talk about uh, green materials and of course green solutions and that's the reason why we invite you to, to come and have uh, a chat with us about that. Um, as a company of course we are very very uh, concerned and we try our best to um, to, to be green and, and, and help our customers. Um, do you think the company should be more, uh, um, more concerned with that and how the relationship in between the industry uh, um, and, and artists and uh, should 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 be more close um, to avoid uh, more materials to, to to go and then in the rubbish. Oh, definitely. I think there needs to be much more of a um, like a system for recycling. Whether it might be an easier routes to go. Okay, here's all our leftovers. Who wants them? So smaller companies can then use them. Because obviously there is a bit of a trickle down effect. Like. Um, in terms of say uh, like bioresins and other materials that are environmentally friendly often they're more they're too expensive for smaller companies or smaller um, performers say so like, let's say with drag people have no budget so it's all well and good saying oh here's a good environmentally friendly material to use but if they can't afford it so but you've got larger companies that'd be nice if maybe they were to buy them and then all of their leftovers which inevitably they will have can then maybe trickle down into smaller companies and smaller productions um it's it I mean and there's just not really much of a system for recycling at the moment either it's kind of certainly in theater and film there's still a uh very much a um culture of shows finished stick it in the bin um 
and it'd be quite nice, uh, quite nice to try and make more reusable items or have more of a system in place to make it easier to recycle. Um, but often it's just so difficult, people don't have the contacts or the links. Um, we've always got materials we want to recycle but just don't know how to, so they have to go in the bin, which is a bit huge shame really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right. And our intention here is exactly to, to talk to as many people as we can and, and making them aware um, that, that there's lots of materials that can be recycled and, and, and reused. Um, in general, um, how is your concern with, with, with green in, in the rest of your life? Well, again, I try and, I try and be as green as possible. Uh, you know, like in terms of, say, with my drag and my makeup, I always try and use vegan and cruelty-free um, products. And again, if I'm if I, I try and avoid buying anything new, so I'll get things from charity shops or use leftovers and stuff found in the bin and scrap and things. Um, so I, I, you know, I try and be as <laughs> green as possible, but um, you know, it does get quite difficult. I, you know, I sort of I've got this sort of reputation now for certainly as a performer that I have to fit all my stuff on a bike because I try and cycle between venues and from work to shows. So I've got to try and figure out a way of fitting all these huge things on the back of a bike which is quite fun but um it's worth it just to be a little bit green i suppose but um it's a bit of a nightmare <laughs> and and apart we already talked i said what what you do um as, as as a job but you also are you also a teacher is that correct how does that happen how did you start teaching well a sort of so i i work as a prop maker within a drama school so um while i'm not officially a teacher i kind of help uh, the students make everything and kind of guide them in the right direction and do do a few lessons and things so um I kind of, I kind of fell into that again when I after I left sort of the film industry um and my drag career was starting to pick up I was trying to find somewhere that was a bit more stable so uh place in education is always a good spot for that really and as you know especially right now it's quite it was quite nice I was quite I feel quite lucky that I, I was still able to work and um uh perform at the same time um, and have that stability and then obviously yeah and it's quite nice then being able to see you know interact with the the future of model making and prop making and try and guide them towards being less wasteful and using the right materials and using more scraps and things and try and make you can still make beautiful wonderful things without needing to spend loads of money on really expensive um, brand new equipment uh, so yeah, I've kind of sort of fallen into it, but it's, it's quite nice. <laughs> yeah, well, when when I said teaching, I think uh, nowadays, as long as you can inspire and pass your your passion to to other people, can be can be seen as as teaching, and and you do that uh, really well. Uh, um, do you also um, share that that green passion uh, to your to your students? I, I I presume you already mentioned that. So yeah, I quite like trying to. Um show them how they can use offcuts and uh, scraps to try and remake remake things um, and uh, currently I'm trying to think of projects that we can start doing that would use up old material from shows so they can learn new technique without a need to be buying in uh, brand new things um, so yeah we're trying to get them to be as environmentally friendly as possible but you know sometimes with students they can be quite <laughs> uh, messy so there can be waste created just by the mess really but um a lot of them i think we're lucky that uh as people are growing up people are more inclined towards being green typically i found again certainly in industry it's often the older older uh, prop makers and things that are more resistant to change and um being less wasteful whereas people who are newer and younger are much more into trying to 
be less wasteful, which is definitely a bonus. It makes things a lot easier, I think. And and do you have uh, people asking you how to get into uh, prop making and, and drag? I, I do, sort of. I mean, I have a lot of uh, drag people who ask me how to make props. Um, and uh, I have a few, I suppose I have a few of the students have kind of, I kind of keep it a bit secret. It's not like it's a dirty secret or anything, but it's kind of a trying to keep the two worlds separate almost. Not in a, not because it's a bad thing, but... Um, I think my my drag people on my drag side of life know very much that I'm a prop maker, but I try and keep a bit secret from the students. I have this kind of secret life going on. Uh, I don't know why. I'm sure I'd be more open about it, but I think it's quite funny to be kind of have like an alter ego. Um, so some of them have obviously asked me about how they uh, the sort of contacts I might have in the cabaret world, because often that's where some of the more exciting builds are. But um, a lot more of my uh, crossover comes from people asking for proper advice. To be honest, um, let's let's kind of bring the conversations so far for your drag world and leave the other the other side of your life a little bit away. Um, with with this pandemic, uh, um, of course, everybody been affected. How did that affect you and your in your work? Well, obviously, live shows kind of dropped off a little bit. Um, and like I said earlier, I feel extremely lucky that I still have a you know, a day job that's stable. Um, it feels that like education is probably one of the few things that was still going and um, sort of supported. So um, quite lucky in that respect, but um, all the live shows just completely plum uh, plummeted. And um, which again is a real shame because obviously uh, drag and drag venues um, are often sort of queer community hubs, which obviously when they all closed, that meant that a lot of people lost their sort of their chosen family and their places they felt safe, which I think was more of an issue almost than the performance side of it dropping. Because I think uh, the nice thing about cabaret and drag is it can be done online. It's not the same, but people could still uh, do things virtually, but the space was gone and the audience interaction was gone. I think that's been a huge, huge loss over the last year, really. It's a, it's a thing that you can't really recreate digitally, unfortunately. So. Um, Definitely looking back, back uh, looking forward to when um, we can have that all back. I think. <laughs> yeah, we're all waiting for 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 the world to go back to what what we used to see as normality, and and this this pandemic also allowed you to to um, I don't know if I would say collect more uh, material or, or look at our materials from from a different way. It's given me a huge uh, amount of time to just use up all the stuff that I've been hoarding <laughs> over the last God knows how long. So I'm kind of doing a project at the moment where I'm just kind of burning through all the stuff that's just been sat there waiting to be used, but I haven't got around to it. So it's a, which is, it's been quite a nice opportunity in that um, respect. But um, yeah, I'd, I've I had a bit of fun working with, experimenting with like loo roll tubes. That was quite a fun one. Uh, made some cardboard flowers and things like a, a big, uh, flower bouquet um, and currently at the moment like I said I'm trying to use up what I've got um, but I've got plans in the future for things I want to do I've, um, I've been meaning to sort of teach myself how to use things like Illustrator um, so when I have access to the laser cutter at work again I've got plans for um, new ideas I could do using foams and like I've, I've recently put up a made a look that used old camping mats that's quite a it's quite an easy foam to work with, but um, it's going to be quite nice going to, going forward and trying to do a bit more interesting cut out pieces. I did make a piece over lockdown that was made out of um, 
old craft foam that I had lying around and old lighting gels which when combined can make like a stained glass effect that's quite lightweight and you don't have to worry about it smashing or anything. Um, but the only downside of the way I did it was I had to cut them all up by hand which took ages so <laughs> I think my plan for the future is just trying to get more on the try and do more digital things that means I can then combine newer techniques and old scrap materials and see what I can how I can yeah combine them into something new and interesting really without having to spend hours with a scalpel <laughs> cutting each individual bit out. And that's where it is important also to have some contacts uh, where you can we can um, have access to, to some of the machinery that may can can um, help you to to, to develop uh, what what you're doing. Do you have uh, ever come across with with problems like um, using a material and don't know how this material may react if I apply glue or heat or? Um, often, there's been a few times where I've accidentally stuck the wrong glue on with something, but um, I think quite, I was quite lucky when I worked in film that I came across quite a lot of different types of materials, so I kind of, you kind of get, you get a feel for like the, the texture of the material and the, how that might affect how it can be glued together. Um, I still haven't quite figured out how to glue silicon together, which it always just feels peels. I, even if I use the proper glues, it just peels apart for me. So maybe I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> but um, uh, but often I do come across a new material and I'm, I'm gluing. I found a way to glue it together, but I'm also aware that there's probably a better way of doing it, and I haven't. I'm just doing it wrong. Um, so it's a, that's where again it's important to have advice and contacts and I suppose data sheets as well, so you kind of know that you're not going to be le releasing a horrible chemical. I've got an ongoing battle with the, I'm trying to get rid of the, the hot wire um, machine we've got at work because I'm personally not a fan. Um, the amount of times I've got to try and make sure the students don't use the wrong contact adhesive on uh, polystyrene so they don't accidentally melt their pieces together, <laughs> so, which is which is never fun, so got to be on the lookout for that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's important and, and the reason why we we, we came with the idea of doing this podcast is exactly to to share um, this information on materials with with uh, with different different worlds and uh, and I think it's really interesting. Um, I've been looking, of course, at uh, your Instagram uh, throughout this conversation, and I knew at that because we also um, had some some conversations before that. But uh, um, do you want to tell us a little bit mo more about um, this new project, uh, uh, the queer mythology project that you're working on? Where is the inspiration came from? And uh, um, the pictures are amazing. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more <laughs> about that? So the idea behind that is, um, I, well, a lot of my drag performance is based around uh, mythology. I mean, Edie is short for Oedipusy, so like Oedipus, the guy who famously slept with his mum. So very child friendly. <laughs> and uh, so the idea of this series was just to do a series of Photoshop tr uh, photos of, um, well, yeah, the A to Z of queer mythology. So I've gone through uh, sort of, I've got this massive tome of queer myths and kind of going through that and trying to find interesting ones from around the world. Um, more Part of it is just an excuse to make, again, to use up all the materials I've got lying around that I just need to use up. And part of it also is a way to kind of show how queer identities and bodies and um, experiences have been around and reflected in uh, our stories and mythology for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years um, and we still have this narrative today that 
you know, being being queer is a is a new thing. Non-binary is new. Uh, being gay is a choice. Or that people still seem to believe these things. When actually, you know, if you look back at the history, our ancestors, you know, way back in Mesopotamia, <laughs> were aware of it and were like, oh yeah, it's a thing. We've got a story about it. It's reflected in our mythology. So I'm kind of using that as a nice sort of. Uh, research project slash excuse to make a load of silly beards really so it's a bit of fun but also so hopefully people enjoy um looking at a load of silly headpieces made out of weird materials um you know they've got one where i've made a beard out of kebabs um and also maybe learn a little bit at the same time i think that's that's a good way to to um to talk about the project is just to see you and of course the props that you you prepare but also learn a little bit more and, and there's a lots of history there like some of the examples that you just just gave here um what is your future what is your the project for your future what is the next one uh, next project you're going to work on I'm, I'm one of these awful people that's got loads of ideas and never knows which one to go on. Um, though one of my, my housemates made, made, uh, gave me an idea the other day of doing like drag heap challenge. So doing, I don't know if you've come across scrap heap challenge, but do a whole show or um, I don't know, se series on taking old scrap materials and then turn them into drag looks. I think that could be quite a fun thing to do. Um, but I'm actually working on uh, material to do when we are obviously allowed to go back live um, so trying to come up with my own sort of original music and uh, more silly songs that I normally do and trying to elevate what I've currently got in my drag closet to try and make it a bit better but um, so I've got yeah too many ideas at the moment to really pinpoint one of them but so either it will be some sort of epic piece about queer mythology or it will be me dump diving in a skip and having a great time <laughs> so i think it would depend on what my mental state is at the time to be honest <laughs> that sounds like a, a great project well from our side i can say uh, thank you very much for your time uh, to come to speak with us uh, and and give us your time to talk about about your work like you know uh, you know a little bit more about about us as good fellow we have a company that have some materials i'll definitely going to have a look on our on our skips at work and and see if there's anything that uh, um, could help and then um, we'll have a conversation and maybe send you some of our uh, scrap materials that can be used. Uh, uh, we'll definitely send you the, um, the data sheets of the materials, so make sure that you know what they are. But thank you for your time today to, to come to have a chat with us. That sounds lovely. Thank you very much. It's been lovely chatting to you as well. <laughs> Next week, we are talking about Tantalum. Aphrodite and Adam will tell us more about this exciting material and the modern applications in some of the most common equipments from mobile phones to TVs and computers. Also joining us, we have Alan Scott, one of the most knowledgeable Goodfellow employees who retired in 2019 after working with us for over 40 years. His passion for metals is in his blood. Joining us as we explore the rich history of Goodfellow. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. You can access all the information on the website www.materialshub.com. The images and any case studies mentioned can also be found at www.goodfellow.com news case hyphen studies. This podcast is also available on alternative podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, Deezer, TuneIn, Overcast and many more. 
We hope you have enjoyed this podcast and invite you to help us in supporting Outside In, the charity which aims to make the art world a fair place for everyone. Donations, no matter how big or small, make a huge difference to artists who have struggled to make themselves heard. We welcome you to join us in supporting Outside In. For all the information, visit the website matthewshub.com forward slash podcast.